Tonight I'd like to take a look at the last chapter of 1 Samuel, which is chapter 31, and the first chapter of 2 Samuel, uh, along with chapter 2, the first seven verses. When we begin to read the book of 2 Samuel, we find that David had returned to a place called Ziklag, and it was two days later, it appears that he was waiting to find out something or hear some word about a battle that he knew was going to take place and was taking place between the Israelites and the Philistines. The news that he got was not good news. We find the man came and told David that Israel had been defeated. Now we read about this battle again in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now the man that came and gave the result to David did not give an accurate report. And some people who are biblical critics uh, want to find a contradiction here, but there's no contradiction in these two accounts, and we'll explain why. As we take a look in chapter 31, we find the final days of Saul. He and the Israelites went into battle against the Philistines, a battle that David would have been in had it not been for the mercy of God. Had not God providentially intervened, David and his 600 men would have been in this battle on the side of the Philistines against the Israelites, and David would have been fighting against his three brothers and also Jonathan. But God was very merciful, very gracious, and in his providence intervened to where the, the soldiers, you might say, or the king there, his elite soldiers, objected to David being with them. They did not trust that David remained loyal to them, and their great fear is he would change sides and fight for the Israelites. Now, David had done something very foolish, as we, if you remember, we go back to 1 Samuel 27, and this is important for what I want to say tonight. David said in his heart, David trusted in his heart, which Solomon tells us, a man that does that is a fool. For a while here, we find that David is out of the will of God. David being out of the will of God is out of communion with God. And David does a very foolish thing, because he didn't inquire of the Lord, didn't pray unto the Lord, he just looked to his own understanding. Proverbs 3 and 5 seems like it just pops up everywhere when you're studying the Old Testament. When uh, we find that Solomon said that we should trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding. All our ways acknowledge him and he shall direct our path. Well, this is a time in David's life when he did not acknowledge the Lord. It was a time in David's life when he leaned to his own understanding. And when you lean to your own understanding and you start making decisions based upon carnal thinking and carnal reasoning, and you're walking by sight, you're not walking by faith. Now God mercifully again intervened where David was not in that battle. The king sent him back to where he came from and went back to Ziklag. And remember, when we went back to Ziklag, we find where the Amalekites had come and had destroyed that city and burned it with fire and took all their family and all their possessions, took, it, took them captive. When David and them got back there, we find where they were greatly distressed. And David's own men were talking about stoning him to death. And David didn't have any human support left. So he'd done what he should have done in the beginning. He encouraged himself in the Lord. And this is the first thing he did, the first important step he did in being restored back to communion with God. And Lord, to be our helper tonight, we'll see this kind of toward the end. So he encouraged himself in the Lord. And he inquired of the Lord, should he go after them? The Lord said, go, and you shall recover all. Remember how this is a picture, of course, of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came down from heaven, 
He came to recover all. He didn't come to recover some. He came to recover all, recover all of the elect of God, all the family of God. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, his offering sacrifice to God, we find that's exactly what he accomplished. And then David divided the spoils, not only with his men, but with every place he had ever been, with everybody who ever helped him out. He shared the spoils of that great battle, that great victory, uh, with all of them. It showed the kindness in the heart of David. It showed he never forgot those who helped him out, who was his friend, even when it uh, endangered their own lives. So we see here this battle takes place. We read the details of the battle. And I might say it's a battle that Saul knew before he entered into it he was going to be defeated. And Saul was not used to losing battles. In Saul's reign as king, God had blessed him to win battle after battle after battle. Yes, the women sang that David had slain his ten thousands and Saul his thousands, but nevertheless Saul had slain his thousands. But that song they sang brought out the worst of Saul. And you see, David's emergence uh, did not bring problems, it just revealed problems. It revealed the main problem Saul had was that he wanted to do things always his own way. And in so doing, he wound up rejecting the word of God, and so therefore the kingdom was taken from him. And it got so bad that reading the 28th chapter, where he actually went to the witch of Andor, actually resorted to, to satanic means of trying to get some type of counsel and leadership. And that's, I don't know anything worse that a person can do than to go to Satan himself for help instead of to God. That's how low he got, how bad it got, what a terrible condition he found himself in. And God blessed on that occasion miraculously for Samuel to reappear unto Saul. And Samuel gave to Saul a prophecy of what was going to happen. He said, because you rejected the word of God, because you failed in what God told you to do, it says, God has departed from you. He said, ye shall go out into battle against the Philistines, and you and your men will be as I am this day. In other words, you're going to be slain in that battle. You're going to lose this battle. Now, there are many times God told his people ahead of time they was going to win a battle. Remember when he talked to Joshua? He said, see, I've given thee the city. He told him about Jericho. I've given you the city. And he gave him the city before the battle was ever fought. I've given you the city. I've given you the king. I've given you the mighty men of valor. He's guaranteeing victory before the battle is ever fought. Well, here God through Samuel is telling Saul, in other words, I'm guaranteeing your defeat before the battle is ever fought. Saul knew he would lose the battle. Saul knew he would lose his life in that battle. But I will say this on his behalf, he still went out and engaged in the battle. And so they're slain. His three sons are slain, including Jonathan. And then we find that Saul is injured. And Saul uh, calls upon his armor bearer to finish slaying him, but he would not do that. And so Saul fell upon his own sword, so he ended up taking his own life. When the armor bearer saw he did this, the armor bearer actually fell on his sword, and he followed suit. Now, we're going to find the next day the Philistines came, and as they began to go among the dead, they found Saul and his sons, and they took Saul's head off. And they hung Saul's body and in the, in the bodies of his sons upon the wall of Bashan. And he put his armor uh, in the house of Astaroth, another false god. And they just boasted about how they had won this great battle 
against the Israelites, which they had done. But they only did because God withdrew and God departed from Saul. But there's something very important as this chapter ends, and that's the men of Gabesh Gilead. When they heard what had happened, the valiant men among them risked their own lives, and they went and they took the bodies of Saul and his sons off of that wall, and they risked their lives going, risked their lives coming back, and we find where they actually, the bodies had been mutilated. That's what they'd done to the bodies of Saul and his sons, been mutilated, and they took and burned those bodies. This is not cremation, by the way. The Jews did not practice cremation. But when bodies were so mutilated, they could not be uh, taken care of and buried properly. This is what they did, and they did it because of the enemy. But then they took the bones of them, and they buried the bones under a tree in a certain part of the country there. Now, if you go back and read in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, you'll see one of the first battles that Saul fought was to rescue the people of Gabesh Gilead. The Ammonites had come and had threatened them, was about to overtake them, and they sought help from Saul, and Saul responded. That was back in his good days. He responded and took his army, and they defeated the Ammonites and rescued the people of Gabesh Gilead. The people of Gabesh Gilead never forgot that. And now... They risked their own lives, the valiant men did, to go and get the bodies of Saul and his sons off of that wall where the enemy had hung them on that wall and brought them back and gave them a proper burial. Now, David, two days later, after returning to Ziklag, after his great victory, is waiting to hear word. Now, David could have sent a messenger, but I want you to start seeing something about the character of David here. David knew that he was going to be the king of Israel. We find Samuel, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, had anointed him. We find where God had told Samuel to tell uh, Saul in chapter 15 that he was going to take the kingdom from him and give it to a neighbor of his, and that neighbor was David. Abigail reminded him about that. Even Saul, two different times when David had a chance to, to kill Saul and did not, Saul uh, said to David, I know thou shalt be king over Israel. David knew that, but David was going to await God's time. And so he doesn't send a messenger to find out. He's waiting for the word to come to him. And finally this man comes to him and gives him the report of everything I just said except what I'm about to tell you. This man was an Amalekite. And this Amalekite tells David he came upon the battle scene. And he found Saul still alive. And Saul asked him to slay him. He said, when I knew he could not live... And he requested me to do it. I took out my sword and I slew him. Now, that's not what happened. Saul fell on his own sword. It's not a contradiction. Uh, the Bible's just recording a lie here. See, the Bible records everything that was said and done, whether it was good or bad, whether it was truth or whether it was a lie. You remember God recorded a lie in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? When the serpent told Adam and Eve, or told Eve, thou shalt surely not die. That was a lie. Well, the Bible recorded it. <laughs> The Bible is true. It records both truth and lies that was spoken. And so here's this man. He comes to David without a question. He thought, surely David will be glad to hear that Saul has been slain. This will bring me into favor with David. And especially if I tell David that I'm the one who actually slew him. Well, he's coming to a man who had two chances to slay him and did not do it because he was God's servant. He was God's anointed it would not do it. 
Here comes this Amalekite thinking he's going to be in David's favor by telling him he's dead, and he's the one who finally slew him. He thinks David will rejoice. But Solomon tells us something in Proverbs 24, 17. He says, Rejoice not when thy enemy falleth. Let not thy heart be glad when he stumbleth. That's the natural thing to do, isn't it? You know, I might even in my carnal thinking here think when David gets this news, he's going to be really happy. When David gets this news, he's going to rejoice. Finally, his enemy has been slain. His enemy is taken out of the picture. He's going to be happy about it. But we're going to see here that's not David's attitude. David, unbelievably, David loved Saul. David loved Israel. David loved Saul. He loved Jonathan. He loved his people. And he wanted the best for them. I believe David wanted Saul to succeed. But he didn't succeed, did he? So we find the report comes from this Amalekite. And what's the first thing that David does? Look in, uh, look in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we will look in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and rent them, means he tore them, and likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening. They wept and mourned and fasted a long time throughout the entire day. For, for what? For Saul and for Jonathan, his son. Not just for Jonathan, but for Saul and Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord, and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. This was sad news to David and his men. They didn't rejoice. They were not glad. They wept. They had sorrow. They had grief. And they wept and they fasted until evening time. That means until the sun went down for Saul and for Jonathan. And this is not what the Amalekite was anticipating. And if you've never read this before, and someone said to you, what, what do you think David's reaction will be when he finds out that Saul has been slain? You probably wouldn't uh, come up with this answer either. You probably say, well, I guess he was finally relieved. He's probably happy and glad that he didn't have to do it, but somebody did it, and he no longer would be a fugitive. But that was not David's case. This tells me something about David that perhaps we have not seen in its fullness until now. What have we seen about David? We've seen David to be a man of strength, a man of courage, a valiant man. David himself was a, a, a shepherd, a very faithful shepherd who defended his sheep at the risk of his own life. We see David as a great warrior in fighting against Goliath. We find him leading the battles against the Philistines many different times. Uh, we find David would not take the life of Saul when he had an opportunity, not once, but two different times. We find that David is a man who is very gifted and talented. He wrote many psalms. Many of the experiences David uh, went through that we've already looked at, you can find psalms that will relate to it. Uh, he was gifted. He was talented. But you read all the things that David was gifted at. The most important thing of all is, when you first read about David, the last thing is said about him, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. David wasn't a perfect man, but he was a good man. He was a great man, a gifted man, a talented man. He was a man after God's own heart who the hand of God was upon. So we find him weeping for Saul. We see the compassion in his heart for Saul and for Jonathan. And David said unto the young man that told him, Whence art thou? He answered, I'm the son of a stranger and a Malachite. Now, the Amalekites were the very first ones that engaged with, with Israel in battle when they came across the Red Sea. You go back to Exodus chapter 17, you'll find when Israel comes across the Red Sea that the, in, 
in the first confrontation, the first battle they have is against the Amalekites. This is the battle where you have Moses and you have Joshua and you have Aaron. And, um, you know, Joshua goes down. He's the captain uh, of the army in the valley. And then you got Aaron and you got um, the other man. Uh, here we got him all there as Moses sits upon that rock. On one side is Aaron and on the other side is a man I can't think the name. But anyway, they're there and they're supporting him. Okay? This is that very, you know, well-known battle, the very first battle, and it's against the Amalekites. And they win. And when Moses' hands start coming down and gets weak, we find the battle swung in toward the Amalekites. But when they raise his arms up like this, the battle swung back in favor of the Israelites. And so we see a picture here of cooperation. We see a picture here of togetherness, of unity, etc. And we see, finally, a great victory. When the victory is over, here's what God told Moses to say unto Joshua. He says, you have Joshua right in this book that the Amalekites, I will fight against the Amalekites. And he's basically promising here that they're going to wipe the Amalekites away and wipe them out. And Saul had an opportunity to finish his job in 1 Samuel chapter 15 against the Amalekites, and he didn't do it. The Lord said, when you go out and fight the battle, he says, you bring nobody back alive. The king, nobody alive. You destroy everybody, plus all the cattle, all the, the camels, the animals, etc., etc. And we find here's where God charged Saul with rejecting his word because he didn't do that. He didn't do that. If he'd have done that, there wouldn't have been an Amalekite here. This man's an Amalekite, you know, the enemy against God. And so David is questioning here, and here's what he says. He says, how wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called one of the young men and said, go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. He testified against his own self. He said, I killed him. I took the sword and I slew him. David says, your own mouth has testified against you and found you guilty in my sight. Somebody might say, well, uh, David, uh, should David have done that? Remember what the Lord said about the Malachites? They were God's constant enemies and God said they will be wiped away. And what Saul did not do, David did. David was just in the action. Beginning with verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Notice here, uh, as we read this, it's about Saul and Jonathan. It's not about Jonathan only. It's Saul and Jonathan. Now we know that Jonathan was David's dear friend. And of all the things you read in the Bible about friendship, you're going to see them, I think, personified in Jonathan. Jonathan loved David. They had a bond, a, a, a tremendous relationship. You're going to find that Jonathan and David entered into a covenant. And Jonathan recognized, even though he was the heir apparent according to normal proceedings, if his father died, he'd be the king. Jonathan recognized he was not going to be king, but it didn't seem to bother Jonathan that he was going to be kind of second fiddle. He knew that David would be the king and he wanted to be the right hand of David, you see. But that's not going to happen. Jonathan is going to be, was slain in the battle, so that's not going to take place. But as David is lamenting Jonathan, he laments Saul right along with him. Now what's that tell you about this man? 
When you read this here, remember what we uh, mentioned from time to time in Romans 15, 4, things written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience come for the scriptures might have hope. If it's written for our learning, then it's written for our application. What we learn, we need to apply. So let's see what kind of spirit David has here. He's lamenting. And he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it's written in the book of Joshua. This is known as the song uh, of, of the bow. He says, the beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? As I read this here tonight, I want you to notice, David will not say one negative thing about Saul. Not one. There will not be one criticism, one negative thing that he says about Saul, of course, or Jonathan. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? You know, especially in this modern day, when you go to funerals, it's become, you know, the norm to have a eulogy. And that's, a, that's pretty much of a, a, a new thing. Uh, in, I mean, it's been going for quite a few years, but in terms of the past, that's a relatively new thing to do. But right here is exactly what we have. We have a eulogy right here. That's what David is giving in this lamentation for both Saul and also his son Jonathan. Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. He says, uh, do not be telling this in all these kind of places called the wicked and the evil, and our enemies will rejoice in it. Ye mountains of Gaboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul, as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Jonathan, of Saul, returned not empty. What he's doing here is speaking about the past accomplishments of Saul. Not his failures, but his accomplishments. Kind of reminds me of the story of a woman and her little son went to the funeral, you know, and, and somebody gave a eulogy of the person in the casket. It was all over. The little boy asked the woman, she says, is that really the man up there in that casket? <laughs> he knew the man in the casket, but he couldn't believe everything was being said about it. <laughs> David does not say one negative thing, not one, about Saul. That's amazing. When this man had pursued him for 10 years plus, throughout all the mountains and all the valleys and all the dens and all the caves, I mean, at times he had him right in his grasp. Only for God to providentially take him away and deliver him. He threw a sword at or rather a javelin at him at, on at least three other occasions. He had to go out and fight against the Philistines, feeling sure the Philistines would slay him. He had him marry his daughter, thinking that would do him in. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't have a greater enemy than Saul. But David says not one negative thing about him. Only the good things. And there were some good things, believe it or not, about Saul. Saul had won many battles, won many victories. He restored some stability to the kingdom. In his earlier days, as Samuel told him, when thou was small and not on sight, when he had that attitude, God greatly blessed him. You see, when you talk about Moses and Joshua and Gideon and those kind of men, you think men of greatness, don't you? But you know why they were great? It's because they had a great God with them. They were great because God helped them. And God would have helped Saul, but Saul would do things his own way. You remember a song that was made very, very well known many years ago by Frank Sinatra? I did it my way. Remember that? 
I did it. My, there's not a more unscriptural song to be written that made a big hit because he said, I did it my way. In other words, uh, that's the way you do it. You do it your own way. That characterized Saul. Where did it lead him? Where, where did he wind up? Saul wound up dying a disgraceful death on the battlefield. Saul lost his life. Saul lost his kingdom. He lost his dynasty. He lost his crown. He, he lost his family. He lost his sons. He lost it all because he allowed envy and jealousy to overrule him. He couldn't, it conquered him. He couldn't take it. He wanted to do things his own way. He rejected the word of God. But in this eulogy right here, you're not going to find David saying one negative thing about him. Now notice verse 23. Very well known verse. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. Notice David does not even divide them now. David keeps them together right now. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. What a compliment he puts upon them. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. No doubt these are some of those very same ones who sang the song, Saul slayed his thousands and David his ten thousands. So he speaks directly to them. Ye daughters of Israel. He says in verse 25, How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. Now, the last couple verses, he does center his thoughts on his good friend Jonathan. When you look at Jonathan and study his life, you'll find that Jonathan loved his father, and he loved the nation of Israel, and he died right beside the side of his father. In that battle. It's unfortunate that his father was such a poor leader. It's unfortunate that his father was overcome with envy and jealousy. It ended up really costing Jonathan his life. Jonathan was not pessimistic. He did not become jealous of David. He, he understood. He stood up for David against his old father. He risked his old life in bringing a message unto David. The last time David and Jonathan meet, you'll find where Jonathan put his hand in the hand of David and encouraged David in the Lord. And later on, David encourages himself in the Lord. But on that occasion there, Jonathan encouraged him in the Lord. You know, that's the benefit, brother, of brothers and sisters, isn't it? Uh, as we go through the trials of life, why do you think the Bible tells us that we're to pray for one another? Why do you think the Bible tells us that we're to bear one another's burdens? Because we need each other. We need a, 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 a firm handshake. We need a hug every now and then. We need a word of encouragement, do we not? And David had that from Jonathan when Jonathan risked his own life and reputation to do it. And now David's going to center his final remarks upon Jonathan, his friend. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Jonathan was not David's biological brother. He was his brother-in-law. See, David was married to Jonathan's sister. From that point of view, they were brothers. But they were brothers in a greater sense, just like we are tonight. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. That's a tie stronger than natural ties. That's a, a tie that's stronger than that. That's a tie that shall never be broken. 
never be broken, you see. So, um, and then they, again, had a friendship of all friendships. I mean, it's the classic example of what friendship should be about. You know, Solomon tells a friend, liveth at all times. There was never a time Jonathan didn't love David, and David didn't love Jonathan. If a man hath friends, he must show himself to be friendly. Faithful the wounds of a friend, but deceitful the kiss of an enemy. I mean, you go verse after verse after verse in the Bible that teach us the principles of friendship, you find them personified in Jonathan. How the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle, O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. He's just simply saying here, there's a distinction, the kind of love you and I had for one another, you know, in distinction from that of a man with a woman. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished. Did you get one hint of anything negative in all of that? Is there one word that was said by David on this occasion? You know how he wanted Saul to be remembered? He didn't want Saul to be remembered as that envious and jealous man uh, that destroyed himself. He didn't want Saul to be remembered as that man who pursued him, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, like a hunter would a, a, a quail. He didn't want Israel to remember this man, you know, and all the negative things that happened in his life. He wanted the nation of Israel to remember this man in a very positive light, in a very positive way. Things written the first time, four times written for our learning. Again, that we through patience and comfort, might have hope. We're having a great example set before us right here how we should conduct our lives, even concerning those who have not been our friends. David said not one thing negative of Saul or Jonathan. Chapter 2. It came to pass after this that David inquired of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice here, David did not... You know, he did not uh, practice uh, being presumptuous. David knew God had promised him the kingdom. David knew that he, God had promised him to be the king one day. David could have just thought, well, Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead. Uh, you know, the, any block between me and being the king of Israel has totally been removed. He could have just rushed right over the scene thinking now he would claim the throne. He didn't do that. David is not going to take one single step without first asking the Lord about it. That's important. Again, we look at Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not to your own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy path. In the book of uh, Philippians chapter 4, in verse 6, he says, be careful for nothing. That means don't worry. It's okay to be concerned, but don't worry. If you keep in mind that God is in control, he's the supreme ruler of all the universe, that, that puts worry right out, out the picture, you see. Now, again, I have many concerns, but I've told you before, and this is the truth, I taught my worry list a long time ago. I do not have a worry list, and uh, I hadn't hardly said the word worry until tonight in a long time. <laughs> I've said it several times. I don't have a worry list. I have a concern list, not a worry list, because I know who's in control. Okay, I know who's in control. So he says, let your moderation be known among all men. He says, um, take everything to the Lord in prayer and supplication, making your requests known to God. That's what David is doing right here. 
It says, after these things came to pass, David inquired of the Lord. And that expression, David inquiring of the Lord, is used at least a half a dozen times in David's life. You don't find it with anybody else. That's the same thing as uh, when you read about somebody praying to the Lord. But this is a very specific way that God left on record how David sought God's counsel. David inquired of the Lord. Saying, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? See, David one time was in Judah, and he left Judah. Now he wants to go back to Judah, but he's not going back unless the Lord... This is David's road to recovery. As we go back uh, again to 1 Samuel 27, when he said in his heart, you know, surely I'll perish one day at the hand of Saul. This is David's road to recovery from that. We see him taking big steps in chapter 30 when he encouraged himself in the Lord, inquired of the Lord, should he go after the Amalekites who had burned down the city of Ziklag? But now we see him following up on that. He inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. That was a short answer, wasn't it? But notice, it's a general request. God gave a general answer. Now, there are times that God gives a general answer, only to be followed with Pacifics further down the road. You remember in Genesis 12, when God called Abram out of the land of the earth of the Chaldees? He said, get thee up out of this land, and to a land I will show thee. That's what he told him. He didn't tell him what part of the land, any Pacifics about it. That's just what he told him to do. In the 22nd chapter of Genesis, you find where God tells Abraham, take thy son, thine only son Isaac, Unto, uh, up on top of Mount Moriah unto one of the mountains that I will show thee. But he showed him later. He didn't show him then. You see, it's like taking a 500-mile journey or whatever, a 1,000-mile journey, and you're going to leave at night, and you turn the lights of your car on. Is, are the lights of that car going to shine 500 miles? I don't think so. But it will shine maybe 500 feet. 500 yards, maybe. I don't know what the distance would be. But as you cover that distance, guess what? It'll show you the next 500, won't it? And you cover that distance, it'll show you the next 500 until you finally reach your destination. It didn't give you light from point A to point B all at one time, but it gave it to you many times all along the way, you see. So he says, shall I go up unto Judah? The Lord said, go up. And David said there, Whither shall I go? David now wants to be a little more specific. And he says unto Hebron. Now the first time you read about Hebron, you're going to find it in Genesis chapter 13. You're going to find where God rescued Abraham and his family out of Egypt. And after he rescues him out of Egypt, remember how he went down to Egypt because there was a famine and God had to intervene to protect the honor of his wife Sarah? And God brings him back up out of Egypt. The first thing that Abraham does is build an altar to the Lord in a place called Hebron. The word Hebron means fellowship slash communion. See, David's on his way back to, to in recovery. When you depart from God, when you step aside from God, thank God, God is so merciful that he'll bring you back unless you remain rebellious and disobedient to the point he leaves you alone, which that's the worst condition a child of God could ever be in. And he'll bring you back in recovery, back to the place you once was with God in communion and in fellowship. That's what the word Hebrew means. Second time it's used in Genesis 37. 
you'll find where Jacob sends Joseph to the Vale of Hebron where his brethren were at to inquire to them. It was a trip, actually a trip of mercy, pointing us to how God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, from heaven down here on our behalf. And then the third time, you're going to find it used in the case of Caleb. Remember Caleb and Joshua, the ones that went into the land, brought back a good report how they were well able to take the land, you know, when the other ten spies said we cannot take the land. And as a reward for that, Caleb was given a place of possession called Hebron. And you read about it in the book of Joshua. It means fellowship. Remember what, I I just love this, he got it on his 85th birthday. (laughs) On his 85th birthday, you find where God gave unto Caleb Hebron, fellowship, communion. I love what Caleb said. He said, remember 40 years prior to this? You know, God was promised this this mountain, Hebron. I was promised it. He said, I'm as strong today as I was then. Now, physically, I don't think so. But as far as trusting in the Lord, depending upon the Lord, he he was just as strong then in his faith to God and his uh, depending upon God as he was 40 years before that. And he says, by the help of God, I can take this mountain. And he did that. It means fellowship. It means communion. David has returned back to communion with God. And while he's here at Hebron, he's going to be anointed as king of this one tribe, not the entire nation. That comes later down the road. It's going to take years before that happens, okay? Notice what he says. David went up thither and his two wives. And his with him did David bring up every man with his household. And they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Now, everybody's in a place of fellowship. <laughs> That's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, you know, I want to be in fellowship with the Lord. I want you to be in fellowship with the Lord. If I'm in fellowship with the Lord and you're in fellowship with the Lord, guess what? We're in fellowship with each other. <laughs> now, you can't beat that, can you? David's in fellowship with the Lord. His men fellowship with the Lord. His entire family is in fellowship with the Lord. He's inquired the Lord twice. The Lord told him specifically where to go. And God has restored him back to a place that he once had. And the men of Judah came. And there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. What tribe did Jesus come from? He came from the tribe of Judah. And they told David, saying that the men of Gabash Gilead were they that buried Saul. Uh, They tell David, by the way, uh, those men of Gabash Gilead, uh, they rescued the bodies of Saul and they buried Saul. They tell David that. So here's David's response to that. And David sent messengers unto the men of Gabash Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be ye of the Lord, that ye showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and have buried him. And now the Lord show kindness and truth unto you, and I also requite you this kindness, because you've done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant. For your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah hath anointed me king over them. Even in his final words here, he has nothing but good to say about Saul. He says he was your Lord, and he was your master, and you buried him. May God bless you, and may God's kindness be upon you. And I likewise will show you kindness. David's attitude and spirit and all of this was just so superb, wasn't it? His attitude and spirit of this is the kind of attitude I need to have, the spirit I need to have. 
He, he certainly was clothed with charity, was he not? He was that of Stephen's. What it reminds me of in Stephen's last hour, when Stephen's being stoned to death, you read in the last part of Acts chapter 7, what did Stephen do? He knelt down, he's being stoned to death, he cries to God and says, lay not this to their charge. Lay not to their charge. Now, if we will have this kind of attitude in life, it'll carry us a long ways, won't it? It'll spare us a lot of unnecessary grief. It'll, it'll spare us... Uh, you know, from carrying burdens that we don't have to carry. You know, a lot of people are carrying weights they don't have to carry. They can get rid of those weights in just a second or two if they just would. You know, uh, the Lord will take care of everything as time goes on. You don't have to worry. That's why the Lord said uh, that vengeance belong to me, thus saith the Lord. Uh, he said, if your enemy hunger, you feed him. If he thirsty, you give him something to drink. For in so doing, you reap fires of coal upon their head. That goes totally uh, uh, contrary to the nature that I possess tonight. If my enemy hunger, I say, well, good for you. If, if he's thirsty, I say, well, you deserve it. <laughs> that's the carnal mind. That's the carnal attitude, you see. But the Lord said, if he's hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. And when you do that, reap fires of coal upon his head.